Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, a short story called The Lost Club by Arthur Mackin or Machen. It's not his real last name, so I don't know if there's a real pronunciation. Uh, he changed his name at some point. Um, first published in The Whirlwind, December 20th, 1890. And uh, the version we're reading is out of Weird Tales, where it was reprinted in October of 1935. And uh, I don't know much about what's going on in this story, but I'm very interested in it. And I'm very interested to hear what you think of what's going on in this story, Luke, uh, Eric. Ah, interesting. Well, uh, you raise a terrific question, Jesse. In what way can one be interested in something that one doesn't understand? One could be interested in it because one sees just enough in it to feel that there is something of value. One could find oneself interested because one senses that there is a mystery, there's some suspense. Uh, maybe in the case of this story, the interest comes because the story itself sort of is mysterious. That mm. is, it leads us leaves us at the end not exactly knowing what happened. The 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 story as I see the facts of it, at least, Jesse. Let's make sure we're talking about the same manifest story uh, begins on an August afternoon and a young gentleman is walking from Piccadilly Circus toward the other end of London and going down the street he encounters someone else who is <laughs> virtually a doppelganger mm -hmm. we're told that the uh, difference between them is uh, in so small that if one were not to notice the details for instance, the first person we see has a gold-headed cane. The second person we see has a silver-headed cane. We didn't notice those little details. We couldn't tell them apart. These are both gentlemen of a, a lost race, of a, a kind that no longer still exists. It's, there's a hint of irony here. They're referred to as Johnnies. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, Johnny has as one of its meanings um, a a young gentleman of the idle class. Mm -hmm. uh, so an idle etymologically means empty or vacant. So they have nothing to do. And uh, as you may remember that idle hands are the devil's workshop. So what happens later in the story may in fact be the work of the devil in some sense. They get caught in the They meet coincidentally. They do know each other. They uh, keep saying by Jove, by Jove to each other. That phrase comes up again and again, and it's mm -hmm. remarked on by the narrator. So we know there is something having to do with a quotidian reference to a past God. Um, it's not someone who's actually religious today, but there's a holdover. And since this is the Lost Club, and we're told that gentlemen are from a lost race, the whole story already seems to have something to do with lostness. Mm -hmm. Anyway, after three weeks of not raining, it, it suddenly pours. And these fellows who have decided to have dinner together um, uh, get caught by the rain 
they've had rather a lot of Chianti, uh, which is a, a wine that they can't name, but the narrator can. And it is, we should remember, a, a peasant's wine in Italy. It's not a fine vintage. It's a peasant's wine, but they have enough of it that one has to wonder if they may not be tipsy. And later in the story, someone asks if they've had too much Chianti. So everything that passes in the story could be sort of a mutually agreed upon hallucination. I'm mm-hmm. not calling it uh, hysteria, you know, mass hysteria, but it could be all wrong. They try to get out of the rain. And one of them remembers that the other had said that there was a club in a certain place, uh, meaning a social club. Uh, They go under an archway to get out of the rain. And as they're wondering whether or not they could get in there, they spot someone else whom they recognize. Yet another member of this lost race of gentlemen who says, you can come in. I'll, I'll help you get in out of the rain. But the rule is you can't recognize anybody and you can't say anything about recognizing anybody. And after you leave, you can say nothing about having been here. And they do. And they go in. And in fact, they recognize other people. Uh, This fellow who lets them in is named Williams, spelled in a very strange way, W-Y-L-L-I-A-M-S. And I personally look at the double L there and wonder if it's got something to do with the uh, the doppelganger Mm. notion of what's going on, the doubling everywhere. So they go in and it turns out that everyone sits around until the president of the club, one supposes, is ready to preside over their activity, which is the consultation of a large book set between two candles as the president sits above everybody on a dais. And as their names are called, each person goes up and opens the book at random. The person who opens it to the black page is required to go out with the president. Those who do not go out through a different door. We know that when they go out, they can return because, in fact, Williams goes up to the book, opens it to a page with some writing. We never know what the writing is goes out the one door and later rejoins them and is there when Daubigny. Um, Another gentleman comes up and opens to the black page and the president says, well, you need to come with me. Now, our two original fellows are wondering what the heck is going on. And it's explained to them by Daubigny that uh, it's not murder, but they will they just disappear. And with any luck at all, Daubigny will live a long and happy life for many, many years, but not here. He will be gone forever. And uh, from anyone who would know in London. The short of it is that uh, they go out and later they find a, a, a few weeks later, they find a newspaper article saying there, there's been a disappearance of a gentleman. They buy the paper, they read it, and it's Daubigny. And nobody knows where he is. They try to find out what's going on by going back to the club. They find the archway, but in the daylight, looking through it, they see rather a gloomy old house. They knock on the door. They give the secret whistle code that Williams had given to gain admission, um, and a workman opens the door. And it turns out that it's a building in which billiard tables are, are built, which, of course, is something else that one would think of as furnishing men's clubs in those days and looking around 
that building can't be three weeks old. The interior design, the the walls, the, the, the rough use that it's had as a factory, it can't be only three weeks old. So they come back out and they wonder, what the heck happened? Is this possible? Um, and at the end, um, their next step was to try to find, try and find the archway where they had taken shelter. And after a good deal of trouble, they succeeded. They knocked at the door of the gloomy house, whistling as Williams had done. They were admitted by a respectable mechanic in a white apron who was evidently astonished at the whistle. In fact, he was inclined to suspect the influence of a drop too much. So we're back to the uh, mutual hallucination idea. Well, they can't find it. They can't do anything. Philip sighed. He could do no more for his lost friend. But both he and Austin, Austin being the first Johnny we saw, Phillips being the second, remained unconvinced. In justice to Mr. Williams, it must be stated that Lord Henry Harcourt assured Phillips that he had seen Williams in Cairo about the middle of August. Uh, He thought, but could not be sure, on the 16th, meaning um, that we readers understand that the narrator is telling us that Lord Henry Harcourt has given an alibi to Williams who could not have been able to be in London and lead Austin and Phillips into the club. He thought, but could not be sure, on the 16th. And also that the recent disappearances of some well-known men about town are patient of explanations which would exclude the agency of the lost club. Um, That's a strange locution, patient Mm -hmm. of explanations. So I looked that up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and apparently it means uh, it is capable of bearing. So these are the disappearances are capable of bearing explanations, which would exclude the agency of the lost club. Or to put it more simply, there are other simpler explanations for why these people are gone. And that's the end end of the story. It ends with, well, there could be explanations. Maybe these ones are wrong. Did the guys have Chianti? Did they not? And yet all of the the facts that they can point to seem to, not all, excuse me, some of them seem to point to just what they expected, like the newspaper headline, like finding the same archway and so on. I'd point out that archways are terrific liminal symbols. Mm transition from hither to yon and yon to hither and this is a lost race we're told that the building looked like it was an embassy from the last century since this was published originally in 1890 we're talking about an embassy from the 18th century Um, the word embassy doesn't necessarily mean a physical building Uh, for example the ambassador's embassy was to present his country's viewpoint to uh, this other president. Um, An embassy can be a mission, both the physical place and the charge. It can also be the group of people um, who are charged with this representation or this mission. So saying the building looked like an embassy from another century could just mean that it looked like the world of the Johnnies, the world of these idle, rich gentlemen who have nothing better to do and are a lost race. They're the last of their kind in London. Um, And they're just making it up because these are the kinds of guys that Austin and Phillips are. 
but maybe they're not, and maybe someone's really lost. So I look at this story as a story about lostness. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to lose something? And by implication, what does it mean to have something to begin with, such as money and insight um, and experience? They were in town, each claimed to the other, Austin and Phillips, on legal matters. Mm. We don't know whether they really were in town for that or not. They may have just used that as a convenient way to say that this is what they're doing, and they're in town for some other reason entirely. Um, Having good times, a change of scene. They are, after all, idle gentlemen. Um, but maybe there were legal matters, and legal matters we're told in the story are a nuisance. I think but they must be. I think must be. Sorry, go I'm for sorry. it. Well, all I'm saying is it may be that that's a way of the of the writer of Macon letting us suspect that there are unavoidable aspects of life, and then there are others that are susceptible to our changes of perspective. And maybe that's what this story is about. It's about lostness, but a loss is only a loss if you count it as a loss. And a loss is only a loss if if you had it to begin with. And there are some things you have little control over, and the law may define what those are. But then there's mostly the rest of life, and that can be uh, pushed around a little bit, can be warped, for example, by Chianti. Uh, it's a strange story that leaves me wondering, what was Macon really asking us to think about? And in that sense, I too find it interesting because I want to think about it. There, I've had my piece, Jesse. <laughs> well, I've got. Uh, I, I think they. De- I, the opening is incredible, and the whole story is incredible in many respects. And uh, I, I read this review of. Uh, H.G. Wells describing uh, his experience of reading uh, an Arthur Mackin novel called The Three Imposters. And what's funny about the the review is is in it he's he's flummoxed and annoyed by Mackin in the same way that I am. But I don't think that he I he said something he said Mackin is determined to be weird. <laughs> and I think he's right. He is determined to be weird, but he thought that that was like the weirdness was like a bad thing, maybe. Whereas I'm I'm thinking it might be a good thing because I, I, it's possible that the story doesn't have a meaning or even three meanings. It it may be that it's just an assemblage of of things, but. The more you take it seriously, as opposed to the characters who take it to take life very unseriously, um, you may fall into the weirdness and and come to um, love it in a certain sense. So I, I want to go over that opening because it's so ridiculous. 
just the way it's written and this the setup and all that stuff i just open start the opening couple of sentences one hot afternoon in august a gorgeous young gentleman one would say the last of his race in london set out from the circus end and proceeded to stroll along the lonely expanse of piccadilly deserta well he's not the last of his race we're about to find out that there's a guy who looks virtually identical to him um and piccadilly deserta is not a real place <laughs> right it's piccadilly's a real place uh right. piccadilly circus is a real place Piccadilly Deserta is his way of saying, well, you know, everybody who's anybody has left London. And that is supposed to be the case. It's oh, the hot summer. Everybody's at their country estates, right? And these two guys are both wearing carnations. Both are carrying canes. They're utterly decked out. And both are detained in town for the exact same reason, um, a, a legal matter, right? Uh, they have to see their lawyer, we assume. Uh, I'm assuming that they're up on charges for something, um, but maybe it's, you know, they just need to move some money around or whatever it is. As you say, they're gentlemen, they don't work, their job is to be idle. And then uh, throughout the story, they, they use the exact same language and they, you know, they're both saying, by Jove. And there are some lines that are not even, they're not even attributed. It could be one or the other that says it and it doesn't even matter to us so why is this second guy in here why isn't it just one guy telling a story you know why are we seeing these two guys and i think it's in part to to make it even more singular as they would say back then right that <laughs> you've got these two people who have the same experience witnessing this these strange events and they aren't confused and they aren't insane they're just regular fellows right and then they get to this funny situation where they they're taking it far less seriously than we are as readers i think just the way they talk about how you know places are closed and how it's a jolly good this and all that right but the, there is this hint paragraph of I think sort of what we're supposed to be thinking about this story, and I want to read it. It's from uh, page 519 to 520. The pair solemnly wheeled around and solemnly paced from the circus, meditating doubtless on many things. The dinner in the little red restaurant pleased them with a grave pleasure, as did the Chianti, of which they drank a good deal too much. Quite a light wine, you know, said Phillips, and Austin agreed with him. So they emptied a quart flask between them and finished up a couple of glasses apiece of green chartreuse. As they came out into the quiet street smoking vast cigars, the two slaves to duty, what a phrase, and legal business, felt a dreamy delight in all things. The street seemed full of fantasy in the dim light of the lamps and a single star shining in the clear sky above them seemed to uh, seem to austin exactly the same color as the green chartreuse phillips agreed with him you know old fellow he said there are times when a fellow feels all sorts of strange things you know the sort of things they put in magazines don't you know and novels by jove austin old man i feel as if i could write a novel myself so at this point in the story i'm like okay so this is a meta story in a certain sense right these guys are 
in a weird position. They're feeling weird. And then the weirdness starts to really get weird. The the coincidences of these two identical men being in town for two identical reasons, having interchangeable personalities, and yet this single star above them. And then the the real weirdness starts. The the visit to the quote unquote lost club and the disappearances and uh, counterfactual facts that they uncover. One of the things that strikes me, especially when I was hearing your recap of what's going on, um, is that the club building that they visit couldn't have been suddenly changed in so short a time into a billiard factory. And it strikes me that a billiard factory is an interesting kind of factory to have billiard board games uh those are the sort of things you would find in a club and thinking of that black page in the book and the you know the book with two candles between them and all the men called forth to open the book at a certain page or a page at random and then one of them is in a certain sense blackballed taken out um never to be seen again that's a kind of billiard game where you've got a bunch of balls on the table, and as soon as the black ball is sunk, the game is over, right? There's something weird going on. This it's almost like there's a this is story is a metaphor for a certain kind of scandal that was rife in the 1890s, this decadent empire age with all these rich un unemployed men. And then they have to go away and never be seen again, like like in 1984's uh, Unpersoning, right? Oh, he we we don't know about him. Uh, he went away. We don't know what happened to him. Um, it, the the randomness of opening the book to a page, the fact that there are all these clubs all over London, and some of them have wicked things going on in them, right? The most famous one is probably the Reform Club which is obviously not famous for being wicked, but it's famous for being the the club of um, uh, Phileas Fogg in Around the World in 80 Days. Um, there's the Hellfire Club, right, that springs up all over the world at some points. And where the those in, the, in power or uh, temporarily out of power can spend time with their fellows... And this lost club is kind of, I think, a play on the idea that they've got these clubs where, you know, there's that club and this club and the Reform Club and the Hellfire Club. And now there's the Club of the Lost. And once you join the Club of the Lost, you get lost. <laughs> this is a very, very strange story. And I'm struck that it exactly fits the definition that Lovecraft gave to define the weird tale and i think that this is why even though i think hg wells is a practitioner of the weird tale himself he doesn't do it in the same way that mackin does um it it perfectly fits i want to read this description from the weird weird fiction or the weird tale wikipedia entry uh this was written in supernatural horror and literature at where Lovecraft surveyed the entire field. 
The true weird tale has something more than a secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form clanking chains according to a rule. A certain atmosphere of breathlessness and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces must be present, and there must be a hint expressed with the seriousness and portentousness becoming its subject of the most terrible conception of the human brain, a malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. And you might be thinking at this point, ah, that doesn't sound like it fits this story. But I think it does. And the way I think it does is the fact that everyone is seems to be in a conspiracy to say, no, you're wrong, that never happened. Uh, there is no such club, you guys just drank too much. Is undercut by the fact that there's two of them. That they have a sort of disinterest in anything. And the fact that when they do investigate, sort of just out of sheer surprise and and idleness, that the facts of people who were not even there saying, no, what you're saying, it, it's wrong. I, I think I remember seeing the guy in Cairo right around that time. And uh, I don't know. I don't know why you guys would. Why are you interested? They're not even covering anything up. I don't think Williams is lying when Williams says, uh, "Yes, I took you to that club, but it was it was just popular with German waiters." I don't know why you're interested. I think that reality changed, and in a way that that requires these two sort of ridiculous fops. It's a very mysterious story, and I think it does undercut what we think we know about reality. And I think if, that's what weird fiction is all about. If Williams is not lying when he says, or if, if Williams is sincere when he says that it's a different kind of club, then we have three different descriptions mm -hmm. of this. Uh, I, I think that it's worth remembering something that I know that Lovecraft and Wells both knew, and that is that the word weird comes from the old English word meaning fate. Mm. That's why the three witches in the beginning of Macbeth are called the weird sisters, mm -hmm. because they set the fate. And they what they say is going to happen is, in fact, what happens. So in that sense, that literary reference accords with your notion that there are these other forces that people may not be aware of. And if they lead to events that seem to be unaccountable, that doesn't make them false. Mm -hmm. The world is stranger than we understand. This story has in it a number of other references. The word patient, as in patient of explanations, means um, the word patient means you are acted upon. There's the agent and the patient. That's why we talk about um, the patient of a doctor. The doctor, doctor means teacher in Latin, uh, tells you what to do. This story makes other literary references. For example, we're told on that last page, I never heard such a cock and bull story in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. However, that's the famous last line of Tristram Shandy. 
why it's a story of a cock and a bull, and I never heard such a good one before in my life. <laughs> now, Tristram Shandy is a story about someone trying to tell the story of his own life, and it gets away from him. It's always doubling back and forth and so on. This is a cock and bull story of the Tristram Shandy kind, and I will uh, just point out to those who haven't read Tristram Shandy, one of the famous things about it is that it has a black page. Mm. I don't point out that the beginning of the story, that first paragraph that you read to us in its entirety, which is a terrific story, um, uh, is terrific. It, on one hot afternoon in August. Okay, so it's a time out of time. Mm-hmm about the lost race. Piccadilly is unpopulated. Piccadilly deserta may not simply mean that no one from high society is there. It may mean that no one is there. Yeah. And that long paragraph ends thus. He, that is, we will later learn his name is Austin. He half expected to see the briar rose trailing gracefully over the hotel Cosmopole. Certainly the beauty, if such a thing were left in Piccadilly, was fast asleep. Now, Briar Rose is the other name for Sleeping Beauty. This is a direct reference to a fairy tale. But in a traditional fairy tale, a Grimm's fairy tale, for example, um, there's a resolution at the end, typically leading to uh, a setup that lets us know how the life of the protagonist will proceed, typically happily, ever after. But this story, in fact, is Sleeping Beauty before the prince comes in, right? Here, right, beauty is still fast asleep. She's fast asleep. So the the castle within which she is held, that the is protected by its hedge of briars, the briar rose, that's what Hotel's Cosmopole looks like here. Why? We could be living in a fairy tale at that moment of suspension. That moment of suspension is, I think, in perfect accord with the dark archway that they visit at first and revisit once to get out of a torrential downpour, utterly unexpected since it hadn't rained for days, right? Actually weeks uh, to get out of a torrential outpour. And the second to try to find their way out of the cotidian world and back to the world of this strange mystery. So the archway is a transitional piece of architecture. The over overwhelming, encompassing reference to fairy tale gives us, uh, because of the position in the fairy tale plot, a time of suspension and transition. And it may well be that what we're being told here about lostness is that things get lost because they stop functioning in the world, even though we think they should, even though they may still be here. It's just that they're someplace else. They're in Cairo or they're no longer in love with us or we've lost having a role to do of something to do in life. And when you think of that something to do in life, what might one do? Why, these two fellows agree with each other that if they're so inspired, they actually could do something useful. Mm -hmm. They could write a novel. So part of the joke of this story, I think, is the novelist that is making is saying, you know, things are lost, but we can create more of them. Mm-hmm. In fact, we can even create them about things that are lost. And that's, I think, part of what this story is. About this story by Jove, I think there is much more to say.
And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.